and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. We're talking about some of the new things that Jesus organized his movement around. And, and for, those that, uh, for those of us that have been Christians for a while or followed Jesus for a while, maybe we'd consider ourselves veterans. Um, this can get a little bit uncomfortable, and, and, and these are some things that we kind of need to think through every once in a while. I think the church needs to think through every once in a while, pray through, study through, um, and it's certainly been prompting me to kind of think and study and pray through some of these things. And I just, I just think that this happens with anything, any organization, any religion, any movement. Just what happens over time is with movements is that you know something starts and people love what that something does, right? The effect that it has, the good that it does. And so just the focus can tend to turn inward a little bit to where it, it kind of shifts from being about whatever, whatever that movement or organization is doing to kind of protecting the organization itself. The, the focus can kind of subtly shift if we're not careful. And so I think Christianity is no different than anything else. And we just kind of need to go back to the beginning, go back to the foundation, go back to what everything was supposed to be about. And that's what we're trying to do through this study. And so last week, we kind of introduced the, the arrival of Jesus and that the arrival of Jesus actually was a signal that something brand new between God and people was on offer from God to people. And this wasn't Judaism 2.0. As you might know, Jesus kind of showed up on the scene in Israel, talking with the Jewish people, um, dealing with them through the Jewish religion and that kind of thing. This was not a, a kind of an update, a simple update to that um, version of religion or, or anything like that. This was something brand new. And it was in, in the language that we're kind of using throughout this series, what it signaled was the end of what we're calling the temple model. And when we say the temple model, we're not just talking about the Jewish temple. We're talking about all temples and all approaches to religion because they all kind of share something in common. And so whether it was the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Assyrians um, or the Romans or the Egyptians and even religions that are in existence today, here's what we're talking about with the temple model. The temple model usually has four things. There are sacred places. You see this in almost every religion. And usually, you know, when you go to that sacred place, it's someplace where you need to be quiet and be reverent because something special happened there. And they'll usually build a shrine or a building on top of that sacred place. And then inside that sacred place, there might be some sacred texts or a sacred inscription or maybe an oracle or a voice, some kind of communication with something that's supernatural there. And usually that communication or that reading of that text is controlled by sacred men, right? And it's almost always men. And the sacred men kind of control the, the sincere followers because they control the interpretation of the sacred text. And they kind of get to, to you know, divvy it out and divvy it up and, and if, you know, tell the people, the sincere followers, hey, if, if you don't behave, then our God or maybe our gods, they're going to get you, right? And the reason I know is because I'm the sacred man with the sacred text and I talk to you from this sacred place. And so then Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, even to the Jewish temple, for the Jewish temple, but really for all temples, Jesus brings a completely brand new way of looking and, and looking at and viewing religion. And there are some new terms and conditions that Jesus brought to offer between God and humanity. And with these new terms and conditions, Jesus offered a new covenant. There was a new relationship between God and people that was now going to be offered, not just to one people, not just to Jewish people, but to all people. And then along with that, there was a new command, a one command. Somebody say one command. One command. And if you get this one command right, you won't need all of the other commands. 
which can kind of lead us, leave us a little bit uncomfortable, right? It's like, well, wait, there's a lot of other words in the Bible besides that one command. What do we do with that? And then besides that, there was one new ethic that was supposed to feed into all of his followers' behaviors and relationships and, and inform us and give us clarity you know, where things might be a little bit murky. And then, of course, all of this was built around a new movement, or rather was to come into the world through this new movement. Not a church building, not a sacred place, but we looked at this last week, an ecclesia, this Greek word that was, you know, it, somehow it kind of got twisted up and mangled a little bit and forced the, the German word church into our Bible, and we're kind of stuck with that word, and don't worry about it. We're not going to lose it. But it's really important to remember that when Jesus first started offering this, he was not offering a new place or a new building or a new shrine, but he was offering a new ecclesia, a new assembly. It was supposed to be a new gathering. And in our modern day experience, it might most closely resemble actually like a political, something like a political rally. And Jesus was saying, upon this rock, this truth of who I am and the fact that I am come to bring something new into the world, I am going to build my movement. And so this is so important as it relates to the temple model because we have to understand that what Jesus came to offer was not just a knockoff of another religion. That's not what he came to bring. There were plenty of different versions of religion and of the temple model that were in existence then, and they're still in existence today. But what he came to bring was a brand new way of seeing religion as a whole, a brand new way of seeing oneself in relation to deity and seeing oneself in relationship to humanity. It's kind of this reorg of, of all of our human org chart that we might have. And the temple model, what the temple model brought was this standard that really only the elite religious people could meet. And Jesus came, and what he did with the moral standard was, now you might think what Jesus did with the moral standard was lower it, but no, what Jesus did is he came with the moral standard and actually raised it so that not even the religious elite could meet that kind of perfection standard that God has and wants for all people. Jesus raised the moral bar so high that nobody could meet the standard. And once he had leveled the playing field and called everybody guilty of violating God's holiness and God's perfection, then Jesus offered his life as a covering for the failures of the entire world so that we could find ourselves free from the shame and the guilt of not being perfect in our own lives. And the temple model, what else the temple model brought is it required followers to come make peace with God. Come make peace with God. In every religion, in every one of these systems, you see it. You have to come to the temple or come to the sacred men, come to the shrine and bring some kind of offering of some kind to make peace with deity. And Jesus changed all of that. And he showed us that actually in this new arrangement between God and man, God was going to come to where we are and offer a sacrifice to make peace between himself and us. And based on that, because that has happened now and God has taken that first step, now, from now on, you are to first go make peace with your neighbor. And Jesus said, this is not me, so don't throw anything up on stage. Jesus said, first go make peace with your neighbor and your relationship with God can wait. Now, that's uncomfortable to say. I'm telling you, I'm up here preaching and it's not very comfortable to say. So I didn't say it. Jesus did. And if you don't believe me, you can go read the sacred text and you don't need a sacred man to tell you that. Okay, here we go. The other thing is the temple model is culturally specific. Go to that nation. Go to that place. Go to that holy site, right? Make a pilgrimage. And Jesus came along, and with his movement, he said, this is no longer about geography. Take this into 
all the world. Go and there are no more sacred places. In fact, if you go to the most sacred place on all of the earth and stand in that sacred and holy place, when you are there, God considers more sacred the person to your right, the person to your left, behind you, in front of you. There are no more sacred places. People are God's sacred place. And so Jesus brought this completely brand new way of seeing religion into the world. And in the early days of the Christian movement, listen, people from the outside flocked to the Jesus movement. They couldn't get enough of it. They loved this idea, this picture of religion. They were tired of religion as they knew it. This was good news to them. And for the early Jewish followers, it was the same thing. They were tired of the religious treadmill that the temple model had brought even to, quote-unquote, God's people. But The Jewish followers, the first followers of Jesus, had a really tough time with the tension that this introduced into their idea of relationship with God and their idea of religion. And it didn't feel right to them to kind of give up on some of their customs and give up on their traditions. Of course not, right? We get this. It's just old ways die hard. And maybe even like for some of us, it feels almost sacrilegious to abandon the Old Testament and some of those teachings and and all of their upbringing because... This was true for them, and this is certainly true for us. Listen, our conscience determines our religious realities, whether they reflect reality or not. Your conscience, what you feel guilty about and what you feel free to do, that determines your religious reality, whether that conscience actually reflects reality or not. And think about this. Have you ever had someone say to you, hey, you shouldn't feel that way? Does that ever work? Like somebody said, you shouldn't feel that. You ever heard somebody tell you or had somebody tell you, well, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. Does that ever work? Does that ever make your guilt go away? No. Why? When they say that, it doesn't take away our guilt because our conscience has been fine-tuned to a certain set of values, either through teaching or through life experience, whatever it might be. Our conscience is fine-tuned with a certain set of values. Have you ever been around some friends that do something that kind of bothers you? It kind of dings your conscience, but like they don't seem to be bothered by it, and it's a little bit confusing. And you might even know them as kind of religious people, or you know, church people, or you know, godly people. They're good people. You're good people. Everybody's good people, but something about it just doesn't feel right, you know. Or maybe you do something and you can tell, or you find out later that it actually bothers someone else, kind of in a conscience way, in a moral way, right? And you think, well, man, I don't know why they're bothered by that. That's not a big deal. Well, it's not a big deal to you, but their conscience and your conscience, all of our consciences individually have been fine-tuned to a certain set of values, and that determines what we see as really religious or not religious. Now, I was raised uh, Pentecostal. That's how I grew up, and I had a friend whose family um, was Catholic growing up, actually my best friend growing up, and, and I just never got the Catholic thing of confession. I never did, and when Catholic People feel guilty when my friend felt guilty growing up. He knew that he was supposed to go to confession. And I'd tell him, well, no, no, you don't need to go to confession. You just need to tell God you're sorry, and you can just move on. He's like, well, no, no, I have to go to confession. I'm supposed to go and confess to a man. I'm thinking, well, no, no, you didn't. If there's any Catholic people in, in, in the building, don't leave just yet, okay? I may have offended you, but I'm about to offend my Pentecostal friends as well, okay? So I'm I'm equally offensive this morning, all right? Just, just hang in there a little bit. But why? Why do Catholic people feel that kind of impulse? Because their conscience, by what they were raised with, by what they have been taught their whole life, is finely tuned to that reality, and, and they have to go to confession or they don't feel fully forgiven. Now, 
growing up Pentecostal, we couldn't drink any alcohol, right? And then my Catholic friend and his family, they think, well, your family doesn't drink alcohol? No, we don't drink alcohol. Like, none? No, we don't drink any alcohol. And they're like, we drink alcohol at church. <laughs> Wait a minute, you, you drink alcohol in church like where God can see? You know, like, what are you doing? That's crazy. And you're like, well, why don't you drink any alcohol? And it's like, well, because, you know, you're, you're not supposed to. That's why. They say, well, didn't Jesus turn water into wine? It's like, well, yeah, but that wasn't real wine. You know, like, come on, any Pentecostal friends offended and know what I'm talking about? Like, you're real nervous. Like, what is Jared saying right now? I don't know what he's, I'm just saying, show up for the next communion. It's going to be a part. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Stupid, I can't say that. Um, but, <laughs> but listen. Your religious upbringing, the, the, the experiences that you had and that you went to, it fine-tunes your conscience, and that determines your religious reality. And so as we go through this series, it's going to make some of us uncomfortable, and I get that. Just because I'm up here saying it doesn't mean I'm not uncomfortable. And that's why even, look, this is not even accidental. That's why I'm doing this on the heels of the guardrail series that we, we just had. You should have some personal conscience boundaries. I'm not saying that boundaries don't matter and your conscience doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying. Those bring very real and very needed value into your Christian experience. But the boundaries of your conscience and my conscience are not necessarily God's boundaries on his relationships with other people. And you've got to understand that. And so the early Jewish Christians attempted to add Jesus to their existing temple model to their existing traditions, to their existing ways of seeing religion. And of course they would. It makes sense. After all, he was a Jewish Messiah, right? He was everything that their scriptures had been pointing to and talking about for over a thousand years. And so they hung on to the temple model and they hung on to the temple ways and they kind of just merged and, and tacked Jesus' ideas onto what they grew up with until, until, God sent, he used Peter as well, but really until God sent the Apostle Paul to talk to the early Jewish Christians, the early church. And you've got to know this about Paul, and I'm going to take a little bit of time and talk about this. Paul actually shows up as Saul. He doesn't show up on the pages of history as a Christian. He actually shows up as a Christian hater. If you read these stories of Jesus, and Jesus is kind of verbal sparring with these different religious groups. One of the religious groups was the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. In fact, he said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I could out-Pharisee all the other Pharisees. It meant that Paul had memorized the Jewish Torah and, and taught the Old Testament law. And when he heard about Christianity, he kind of told God, like, I got this. I, I'm gonna. And he proceeded to single-handedly attempt to wipe out Christianity and the Jesus movement. He had Christians arrested and oppressed and dispossessed and even executed. In fact, his first appearance in history, he's actually a witness, a bystander at a Christian execution, the execution of an innocent man. And so Paul, like, he hated, he hated the Jesus movement and what it was trying to do and the new thing that it was trying to just break into the world. And until one day on the road to Damascus, he actually met the risen Jesus, and, and he was knocked to the ground, and he sees this bright light. In fact, if you've ever heard that, that saying before, you know, somebody needs to see the light, or I saw the light, that comes from Paul's experience. And when Paul met the risen Jesus, who he was against, instead of Paul being arrested or dispossessed or executed himself, he was offered mercy and kindness and grace, that same grace and love from God that has transformed all of us. And just like it has transformed us, it transformed Paul. 
And he did a complete 180-degree turn, and he actually becomes the most prolific Christian of his time. And so if anybody knew about temple model thinking and kind of the threat that Jesus' movement thinking was to it, Paul knew this. This was something completely different. And because Paul understood this, Paul understood just how dangerous it was to try and mingle the old thinking, the temple model thinking, with the new Jesus movement thinking that Jesus had brought into the world. So he travels all over the world. And what he would do, kind of as his strategy, as he went to these different cities all over the Roman world, he would find Jewish people everywhere. And he would go to their meetings and go to their synagogues and tell them, hey, you know that Messiah that we've been waiting for, that rescuing king that we have been waiting for? He has shown up. And it was Jesus. And this is what his life looked like. And this is what his death looked like. And this is what his life and his death means. And so now Jewish people and non-Jewish people called Gentiles, now you can belong together in this one Jesus family. And there's no more barriers. There's no more walls between it. This Jesus movement is all inclusive. And so he goes all around. He starts all of these little ecclesias, like we talked about last week. These assemblies are gathering all over the place. And one of the ones that he started, one of the movements, the churches, the, the little gatherings that he started was in a city called Galatia. And then here's what happens. He leaves the city of Galatia. He started this little Jesus church there in the city of Galatia. And Jewish Christians are there and non-Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians are there and they're kind of mingling together. It's all kind of new. It's all awkward. They're all still wearing, you know, name tags. Hi, my name is, you know, and all this kind of stuff, getting to know each other. Jewish people are tasting bacon for the first time. It's amazing. Gentiles are having bagels for the first time. It's incredible. Somebody puts bacon on a bagel, a bagel and the world is changed. I mean, it's just, yes, amen. And so, so Paul leaves Galatia, and then he hears that some Jewish Christian missionaries, everybody say Christian missionaries, Jewish Christian missionaries come into Galatia behind Paul. And they start telling the Galatian Christians, especially the non-Jewish ones, hey, Paul told you some really good things, but he left some parts out. Have you heard about the Old Testament law? Well, not really. Well, we'd like to tell you about it. Have you heard about circumcision? Yeah, we've heard about circumcision. And well, we'd like to tell you some about that. Yeah, their new convert class, their growth track class was really hard to go through if you were a man. Our growth track class is so much easier than that. We have a 100% no circumcision guarantee with our growth track class. So just don't ever get that confused about us here at City Grace. And so they would tell these Galatian Christians, look, you thought you were a part of the Jesus movement. Turns out you're almost there. We just need to do a few more things. You have to become Jewish first. And so you need to keep some of the Old Testament law. You need to keep some of our old traditions. And you need to be circumcised. And that's how you'll know you're good. That's how you'll know you're really part of the Jesus movement. And you can trust us because we've come from the sacred place called Jerusalem, and we're sacred men, and we know how to interpret the sacred texts. And Paul hears about this. And Paul is incensed. Paul is so livid and angry, and he has to write this strong email back because FaceTime wasn't working that day. And he starts writing this letter back to the Galatians church. And this morning, today in our, in our lesson, I want us to hear the passion and the anger, the, the, the feelings that spill out of Paul's heart and onto the, the, these pages. And, and, and I want to you know, let it to inform us and, and teach us this morning just how big of a deal this was to the Apostle Paul, this attempt to blend temple model thinking with the Jesus movement thinking. This was a danger. This could derail everything, and Paul knew. Paul had already tried to wipe out the Jesus movement. He knew what danger to the Jesus movement looked like, 
And he said, this, this is dangerous. And so I just want to point out just real quick, in this letter, he mentions a a group of people called the Judaizers. These were Jewish Christians. Again, everybody say Christians. Everybody say they were in the club. These were not outsiders. Jewish Christians who believed that non-Jews were supposed to convert to Judaism in order to join the Jesus movement. They believed that somehow Jesus was an add-on to what they already had. And so Paul, again, he's, he's just so mad. He spent all this time and all this energy distancing the Galatian people from Judaism so that he can blend in Jewish and non-Jewish believers. And now these other teachers have come along And they're trying to tell him, no, in fact, there needs to be this separation. There needs to be this kind of adding on the old thinking onto the new thing. So, again, today I want us to kind of load up on Paul's emotion. I want us to feel just viscerally just how this affected the Apostle Paul. And hopefully if you load up on Paul's emotion today, next week when we talk about some difficult things, you won't load up the kids and say you're never coming back to City Grace. All right? So that's where we're going. So Paul starts out in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, and he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. What Jesus did was, supposed, was some, to bring us something that was supposed to feel like freedom. And so if following Jesus does not feel very freeing to you, maybe you're doing it wrong. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So Galatians, listen, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now think about this. To the non-Jewish Christians that he's writing to, they have never been under the Old Testament law. They had never been burdened by the yoke of slavery of all of the Jewish commandments and all of the Jewish temple system and the religious requirements and the sacrificial requirements and all that kind of stuff. So how can he say to them, don't let yourself be burdened again? Well, because they had been in a temple model system. It just wasn't called Judaism, right? This wasn't just about the Jewish version of the temple model that Jesus came to erase. It was all religions, All approaches to deity that would require these sacred places and sacred texts and sacred men to to convince these sincere followers. Paul's like, look, you've never been under Judaism before, but even though you weren't Jewish, you've been down this religious road already. And so it doesn't matter the label that people put on it. Don't let yourself be burdened again with a yoke of slavery. And he goes on, he says, look, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Somebody say at all. Not even a little bit. If you let yourself be circumcised to kind of become part of this Jewish slash Christian movement, Christ and what he did on the cross and his resurrection and all of that, it is of no value to you at all. Now listen, Paul is not saying that circumcision is bad or evil. Paul was Jewish. Paul was circumcised. All Jewish males were circumcised, have to be circumcised. Jesus' original followers were circumcised. Most of the men in this room are circumcised. In fact, how many men, no, just kidding, don't raise your, (laughs) move right on. But what's going on here? Sorry, that was probably a little bit crude. What's going on here is that circumcision in this context, it represents, Sorry, I'm, that was dumb. I should not have put that in there. 
I'm trying to lighten it up. Here we go. What's going on is that circumcision in this context, it represented the old covenant between God and a people. But we saw this last week, that Jesus showed up to introduce a new covenant between God and all people. And so what Paul is saying is like, hey guys, and especially the guys, if you allow yourselves to go through this procedure so that you can kind of become Jewish somehow, to also become part of the Jewish Messiah movement, the Jesus movement, then what you are doing is Jesus brought a new covenant and you're allowing someone to pick you up out of the new covenant you have just joined and drop you back into the old covenant. And you cannot do that. That was a symbol of the old between God and the Jewish people. But what we have now is new, and it's between God and everyone. So if you do this as a way to belong, then Christ is of no value to you because you're saying you don't want the new. And he goes on. He says, look, again, just in case you missed it the first time. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Christians, Christians, hello, Christians, hello, listen, this is uncomfortable. We got to think through this. We got to talk about this. We know what the Judaizers were trying to do. What they were trying to do was to cherry pick some parts of the Old Testament law and say these parts of the Old Testament law and these rules and these traditions and these you know, things right here, these are required to become part of the Jesus movement or to be part of the Jewish movement. Some of these really matter to our Jewish consciences, and so we're going to say that you have to follow these. And then there's some other ones that, you know, eh, just, just whatever, take them, leave them. So those ones aren't really necessary. So here, just a few of them, you need to take these and add them on to your Christianity. We're going to blend together the old and the new, and everything will be beautiful. We're going to blend together a little bit of our traditions, a little bit of our customs, a little bit of what Moses brought. You know, the great prophet, he's from God, brought God's words down to man. A little bit of God's words. Hello. Now, it's hard to, it's hard to hear, isn't it? It's uncomfortable. It's confusing a little bit. And what Paul is saying is, look, guys, that's not how a covenant works. That's not how a contract works. You can't take the terms and conditions of one contract and pick out a few that you like, and then take the terms and conditions of another contract and pick out the ones that you like and blend them together into some third-party contract that's not even being offered. You have to choose which contract are you going to belong to. And if you choose to belong to the contract that requires circumcision, then you have to take the whole contract. And if you accept that whole contract, then what happened under the new contract, it is of no value to you at all. So Paul's saying, you have to choose which contract do you want. And he goes on, he says, you who are trying to be justified. In other words, you want your relationship with God to be put into the right. You who are trying to have your relationship with God put into the right by the law, you have been alienated from Christ. Listen to this. Christians, you have fallen away from grace. Now he's writing to Christians. You've been alienated from Christ. You're thinking, no, no, no. We love Jesus. We like Jesus, right? We're just trying to be extra good. It's what Jesus did, plus following a little bit of the words of the covenant that existed before. How can there be anything wrong with trying to add some good things on top of what Jesus did? Do you start to see the uh uh-oh? Do you start to see that? 
that somehow we think we can make ourselves better by doing some good things than what Jesus has already declared us to be by doing the best thing. You can't add on to what Jesus did. Now think about this, and there's an illustration to go with this. I mean, this is this is really simple, but it makes so much sense. If one of you after service, and I won't say no if you do, if one of you gives me a $100 gift card to Starbucks, let it be. And if one of you offers me a $100 gift card to Starbucks, you say, Jared, I appreciate you, know, you teaching on this thing, and so here's a $100 gift card to Starbucks. And I say, well, you know, I feel really bad taking this $100 gift card from you, so why don't, I, why don't you let me pay you $50 for it? And he said, no, 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 it's a gift card. So, okay, well, look, would you, would you take 25 Let me just give you 25 a little something. No, 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 Jared, no. How about I just give you 10 bucks? Look, I got a $10 bill right here. If I give you $10 for this gift card, you say, okay, well, yeah, sure, I'll take the 10 bucks for the gift card that I just gave you. What I have just done is turn that from a gift card to a discount card. It's no longer a gift. I have given you something for it. It has lost the gift part off of the card. And what Paul is saying is the moment you try and add anything to God's grace, it's no longer grace. Grace says you're a sinner. Grace says you don't deserve mercy. Grace says you can never earn God's love. You will never be owed God's love, but still you have in full God's love. And it's not something you can discount. It's not something you can cheapen by your own efforts. It is 100% free grace from God. Unmerited favor, unmerited blessing. So Paul's saying, look, the moment, guys, that you try and add a surgery onto your justification. The moment that you try and add in a little light law keeping, a little light rule keeping, you have changed the nature of the transaction between God and you, and it is no longer grace. Something other than grace. That's scary, isn't it? That's scary to us. When you add anything, when you want God to consider anything to justify you, when you want God to consider what you don't do, when you want God to consider what you do, the moment that you adopt any part of that way of thinking, you have fallen away from grace. And God doesn't want any part of that arrangement because that's not what God has on offer. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Paul's saying it doesn't matter your status. It doesn't matter your surgery. It doesn't matter your pedigree, your history, what you do or what you don't do. When Jesus came to offer something, it was something brand new, a new covenant between people and God. And then Paul says something that's so controversial. And and when I read it, it might not sound controversial at first, but listen to me. If you take this and you let this become the measure, or the filter rather, through which you measure the health of your Christianity, this is controversial. Now think about this, Christians. If you're not a 100%, if you're here this morning, you're not a 100% Jesus follower, you're kind of thinking about it, maybe wanting to make your way back to church, maybe you're checking it out, seeing if you're going to follow Jesus. Christians missing this before, and you kind of bumping into those Christians or having experiences in contact with those Christians, Christians missing what I'm about to read next might be the main reason that you're kind of hesitant to jump in with both feet. In fact, like what we talked about last week, the things about the church and Christianity that make it so resistible to people on the outside, they exist 
in the church and in church culture because the church has subconsciously, I believe, resisted what Paul says next. So this is Paul, an ex-Pharisee who knew the Old Testament and knew everything that Jesus had taught and knew people's struggles with blending grace and law. Paul says the only thing that counts. Now look, he does not say one of the things that counts. He does not say number two in Jesus' list of the top five. He does not say one of the things that you Christians should pay attention to. No, pay attention to. No, the only thing. Somebody say it with me. The only thing. Come on, one more time. This is hard. The only thing that counts is your faith expressing itself through love. That's hard to swallow. Paul, like, uh, do you know how many books they ended up putting into our Bible? Like, Paul, do you know how many chapters there are in the Bible? Paul, I grew up in a pastor's home. Maybe you could say, Paul, I grew up in Bible quizzing. I know the Bible frontwards and backwards. Paul, how many things count? Paul would say, one thing. One thing. The only thing of any value is your faith in this new covenant that exists between you and God, your faith in what Jesus has done to you on the cross and how that faith gives expression in your walking and your talking and your giving and sharing and encouraging and feeding and carrying your brothers and sisters through love. That's the only thing of any value to Christians. That's hard to think through, isn't it? It's hard to swallow because, see, the temple model thinking when it kind of requires circumcision and requires rule-keeping and law-keeping. All of that is vertical consideration. God, how am I doing? God, how am I doing? God, how are we? God, I did this. Are we good? God, I didn't do this this week. That means we're good, right? And Jesus and Paul are coming along and saying, hey, listen, that day is over. You are now living under grace. Listen, City Grace Church, when someone dies for you, that means that that person is for you. Christians, can I tell you something this morning? You and God, you're going to be fine. Christians, your relationship with God is not as fickle as your own emotions or even your own behaviors. Hello? Think about this. Forgiveness is on offer for free. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to earn it. God will forgive you. Grace is amazing. Love is unfailing. Mercies are brand new every morning. Stop worrying about your relationship with God. That's why it's called grace, because you don't deserve it. It has always been about his goodness and never about yours. So stop worrying about it. That sounds dangerous, right? Stop worrying about looking up and God looking down. And what Jesus and what Paul are saying is stop worrying about the up and down. It's time for you to start looking around. The only thing of any value is how you let the trust in how he has treated you affect how you treat the people around you. So Paul goes on and he picks up this sports metaphor and he talks to them and he says, look, you're running a good race. And then he kind of uses this wordplay. Paul is really against these people requiring circumcision. Who cut in on you? And Paul's not a dummy. Paul's smart. He's using this wordplay. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion? I've met the risen Jesus. 
I know what he had to say to me. And I'm telling you, anybody that's calling you back to the old way of seeing your relationship with God, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who called you. Remember what Paul said? It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And if anyone tries to tell you otherwise, that doesn't come from him. And besides, Paul knows, hey, maybe I'm just speaking to the men. Let me speak to some of the ladies. Maybe let me speak to some of the bakers in the congregation. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. All it takes is a little pinch of works. All it takes is a little pinch of rule keeping. All it takes is a little bit of this. That little single cell fungus will work through a whole batch of dough. It doesn't take much to spread everywhere and infect everything. Hello, coronavirus people in 2020, right? Paul's saying, I was a Pharisee. I should know how this spreads in religion. And if you take a little bit of temple model, a little bit of legalism, a little bit of gracelessness, a little bit of vertical first and everybody else second. Paul's saying it's going to pollute the whole thing that Jesus came to give us because Paul knew it only takes a small dose of the wrong thing to corrupt the whole thing. It only takes a small dose of the wrong thing to corrupt the whole thing. And we think, well, Paul, like what's the big deal, right? I mean, they're more liberal, we're more traditional, but Paul knew exactly what was going on? Paul saw it all coming, and so Paul is fierce. And, and listen, Paul is about to make a statement, and this is one of the most harsh statements, maybe one of the most graphic and abrasive statements in all of the Bible. Paul is furious, and I want you to load up on how mad Paul is. Look what it drives Paul to say. And if you believe the Bible's inspired, this is God's emotion bleeding out and leaking onto these pages. And, and Paul, remember he made that little word play about the circumcision and all that? He's not done being offensive. In verse 12 he says, as for those agitators, those guys that are trying to get you to go back, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Hey, if you think it needs a little bit of surgery, a little bit of cutting to get you into the Jesus movement, don't stop cutting with a little bit, just cut the whole thing off. That's offensive, isn't it? I should have asked if there were any Sunday school children in the room before I said that. Like, Paul, why do you have to be so extreme? Why do you have to be so graphic, so, so just offensive in your language? And Paul is saying, Yo, you don't understand what is at stake. I just came out of this. I was one of these. I grew up there. It led me to become who I was. It led me to arrest innocent people and hurt innocent people and do the horrible things that I did in the name of God. And say the horrible things that I said in the name of God. Hurt the people that I hurt in the name of God. And offend and push away people from God in the very name of God. Paul knew the temple model very well. Paul knew exactly what it produced because it had produced him. And Paul said, we can't go back. Christians, we can't go back. Because Paul knew that in the temple model, leaders would become self-righteous. Because I own the interpretation of the text. So I know how to make me look good, and you look like you need me. I know how to make myself look righteous, and you look like a sinner. And good luck to you, and so sorry to you, and you're not good enough, and you didn't do it right. But I'm okay, and even though you can't see it, I'm okay because I'm a sacred man with a sacred text, and I stand in sacred places. Paul knew under the temple model thinking that followers would become hypocrites. How did Paul know this? Because Paul had seen it happen before, that people... We'll find or make leaders who dumb down God's words until our consciences aren't bothered anymore. 
We think, I need rules to make God accept me, so what I'm going to do is find a leader and support a leader who will kind of dumb down God's rules so that I feel accepted. But when Jesus came on the scene, he never dumbed down the rules. He never made it easier. He always made it harder. Jesus stood up and he said to the people one day, he said, you have heard it said. Well, who had they heard it said by? The spiritual leaders. Who had they said it to? The people, the sincere followers, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if a man even looks on a woman to lust after her, you have already committed adultery. And suddenly every man in the crowd got really interested in his feet. They all felt guilty. Jesus said, you have heard it said. From who? The spiritual leaders. To who? The sincere followers. You have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. And everybody kind of smiles and smirks and bumps elbows. Well, at least I've never murdered. I wanted to. I wanted to, but at least I've never. And Jesus said, look, look, I say to you, if you even hate your brother, you have already committed murder. Jesus didn't dumb down or water it down anything. He raised the moral standard so high that not a person in his audience, not a person in this room this morning is not guilty of doing things, thinking things, saying things, behaving in ways that have left and failed God's perfection. And if we embrace temple model thinking because it depends on our goodness to some degree, we will have to lower the standard. We will have to find somebody who tells us we're good enough on our own. And the fact is we will never be. But it doesn't matter because it doesn't depend on you. It is grace. So Paul knew to make the followers become hypocrites, the text would be manipulated. Well, I have this verse and it says you're out. And I have this verse and it says you're out. And I have these verses and they say I'm in. And don't, you know, that's all God's word. And don't you want to please God? Who, would, who wouldn't want to please God? So I'm sorry, but you're not in the Jesus club. And neither are they, and neither is he, and neither is she. And you're all out. And ultimately, Paul knew this last thing, that people would be mistreated. You ever been mistreated by a church? Ever have someone put a rule or a law or a thing above love? I wonder if anybody's ever had a church make them feel like they're on the outside of the circle because they don't look like they belong in the circle. Paul, how many things count? Paul would say, one thing counts. The only thing of any value in Jesus' new covenant is your faith expressing itself through love. Because Paul knew if we cling to old things, we will miss the main things. And so Paul goes on, and I know, you know, just like they were, probably some of you are worried about my words right now. Some of them are worried about Paul's words right now. And so Paul goes, look, guys, let me boil it down for you. You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. You're called to be out from under all those rules and obligations and surgeries and everything. But do not use your freedom to indulge your flesh. Like, look, guys, that's not what it's about. It's not just about do whatever you want. That's not loving either. But Paul knows what temple model thinking has taught us. He's saying, leave off all of the rules. That's not what it's all about. And I mean, we have so many things that get taught to us to help ourselves feel better about ourselves. I don't want to ever feel better about myself. Every Now, that sounds weird, all right? Go with me for a second. Listen, I don't ever want to think that I am good enough on my own. Because the day that I think I'm good enough on my own is the day I don't need Jesus. But every day, let me live under the heavy realization that I am a deeply flawed sinner who every single morning needs the grace and the mercies and the love of God. 
And I can repent and ask God for forgiveness of my sins. But listen to me. I don't know what you've been taught, but hear me. God does not forget your sins. You think when God reads the Bible, he doesn't know what David's talking about? Like, what's that story of David? What, what was that? You think when God reads the Bible, he doesn't know about Saul's history? You think God doesn't remember your history and who you are? Now think about that. Think about that. Or we've taught that we just need to confess our sins, and so religion kind of feels like this treadmill of guilt management, right? And, and Catholics and Protestants alike, man, we fill up our sin bucket during the week, and then we go to our religious services, got to go empty the bucket, right? I grew up Pentecostal. We all know full well about the magic of confessing. We were just a lot more worried about the timing because, you know, the rapture. Like we got to stay clean all the time, right? You know, and so Paul's like, hey, you're, you're free from that. That's temple thinking. There was something on offer called grace where you live every single moment under the heavy realization that I am a sinner and I can never meet the standard of God's holy perfection, that on my best days, I will never be deserving of eternal life, but on my worst days, he still loves me. He still loves me. And I'll never earn it and I'll never deserve it but it sets me free from trying to follow those rules in order to be accepted by God. I am accepted by grace. So guys, you're free, but that doesn't mean just go do whatever. No, serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in this one command, this one simple command, love your neighbor as yourself. And this was in the Old Testament. It's like Paul's telling the Jewish Christians, hey, guys, we knew this all along. Dustin, come on up. Hey, guys, it's like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, right? She, she goes through the tornado, and she gets bumped on the head, and she gets you know, thrown into Oz, and she's there and all the chaos and everything else, and she's going through the journey. She just wants to go home. She wants to go home, wants to go home. She gets to the end, and what do they tell her? Nobody remembers that. I know I'm not that old. Come on, somebody. Click your heels three times. She just needed the, the ruby red slippers. She had them on the whole time. Paul's like, Jewish Christians, we had it the whole time. We just didn't know. She had what she needed all along. My Jewish brothers and sisters, we've had the answer the whole time. Temple model is vertical thinking. God, are we fine? God, are we fine? But the Jesus movement is horizontal thinking. You and God are fine as long as you and the people around you are fine. And that's why Paul could say this back in verse 6. The only thing that counts is your faith and what God has done for you expressing itself through love. And City Grace, when we get this right, we'll pray differently. When we get this right, we will see sin in a completely different light. And we'll understand it in a completely different context. When we get this right, our religious experience will be more characterized by the word freedom than any other word. And when we get this right, we'll treat other people better. Hello. Because this is what the Jesus movement was always meant to be about. But if this feels uncomfortable, that's okay. If this just seems too unstructured, you're in good company. First century Christians felt the same thing. By the third century, Christianity had already been ignoring Paul's warnings and started to drift back into temple model thinking. Just like we see happening in the 21st century, we run the exact same risk. And Christianity then, just like Christianity now, can start looking like a temple system again. Instead of a people who rely on a new covenant, instead of a people who live out a new command, 
whose lives are guided by a brand new ethic as we take this brand new movement into our world. But if we can get this right, can you imagine how different our communities would be? Can you imagine how different our country could be if every Christian in America decided, I'm no longer going to judge myself on my church attendance. I'm no longer going to judge my spiritual health by my offering giving. I'm no longer even going to judge my spiritual health by my prayer life or my Bible study or how much I know about the Scriptures, but 100% going forward, I'm going to grade my spirituality based on how well I love other people. Because in the Jesus movement, it's the only thing of any real value. It's the only thing that matters. And the people that aren't here today, the people that are so resistant to the church and Christianity and the, measure of Je- the, the message of Jesus Christ, it's because somewhere along the line, probably somewhere along the line, someone saying something has gotten in the way of the, them seeing the one that loves them more than anybody else. Jesus, help us to get this right. We can. We can, City Grace. We can. Can we all stand in the room this morning? So what if this week, in every interaction, every moment, every opportunity, you looked at that moment, you looked at that relationship, you looked at that conversation, and you asked yourself this question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? Require of me? It's going to be tough to make that happen, but what does love require of me? I don't really want to be the one to tell her or tell him, but what does love require of me? Was this legal? Is this not legal? What does love require of me? Was this sin or is this not sin? I wonder if I can email Pastor Jared. What does love require of me? It was consensual, but what does love require of me? I don't really like people like her. I'm not very comfortable around people like him, but what does love require of me? That could change everything. It could. And it may not change them, but that's not really on you, is it? That's between them and God. But this is the way that Jesus meant for his followers to be. This is what he launched. This is the movement that he started. So starting this week, that's what we ask Christians. What does love require of me? For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.